And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Episode 275 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. How are we doing this week, Brian? Uh, a little rush, so we should, uh, you know what we should do? We should get right to it. That's right. It's tech week for me. It's been a minute, huh? Okay. Yeah. Comics. Porcelain number one. This is the latest book from Maria Jovate with letters by Saida Timofante. Uh, this one is a little different than some of her other works, so I wanted to take a moment to kind of spotlight it. Uh, it is very much a creepy fairy tale. Um, less, some of that. less immediately psychedelic than something like Luna or her work with Brian Azzarello, but, uh, I think still a lot of fun. It starts with this young girl living at home in the desert with her mother who, in a very, like, jack-in-the-beanstalk way, gets sent into town to get some oil for the machines. Okay. Um, and ends up, like, seeing this creepy, mechanical, walking house scuttle up along the road and goes inside, which is a mistake, very much like wandering off the path into the witch's house. And uh, it turns out this house, the entity in it, likes to turn kids into automatons, like remove body parts and replace with robotics and things like that. It's very creepy, very spooky, very body horror. So so it's homesick pilots if Professor Pig lived in the house. <laughs> you know you can't speak that name without me like immediately wanting to barf. <laughs> but i mixed it with something you absolutely love so let's see what comes out of that <laughs> Ugh, let's see what comes out of me okay we're moving on <laughs> it's a good book it's beautiful i've already backlogged people in the comic shop with it speaking of homesick pilots there was a gorgeous caspar wingard cover it's cover b um, uh check it out okay not all robots number one unintentionally i am solo on these first two books this week whoops sorry brian no worries Written by Mark Russell. I'm shocked Brian didn't read it. No, it's because I didn't get a hold of a, a version of it. Because, uh, um, yeah, my, my print copy will be here in probably a week and a half. Yeah. Art by Mike Diodato Jr. Colors by Lee Laffridge. And letters by Steve Wands. This is set in a future inside of the Atlanta bubble. All major cities are in bubbles because we've ruined the environments. And the robot uprising has happened uh, in a very, like... Think iRobot meets Mark Russell's take on the Flintstones kind of way. Okay. Uh, every family is assigned a robot because humans cannot be trusted and have ruined the world. And those robots are their primary caretakers. Humans are basically the robot's pets. But also sometimes the robots malfunction and go crazy and kill everyone and are in fact a metaphor for toxic masculinity. <laughs> so did you say this was like, this was like... um he actually went to the future and saw what's happening or that uh... 
I mean, if there is anyone, I think, in comics who is the most prescient voice of, like, American sociopolitical change... Yeah. It is Mark Russell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I forget if it was on the mic with us when we talked to him, because it's been a minute, and also I was sick as a dog, Uh, but also... It could have been any number of other interviews or talking to him at a con or something like that. He talked about uh, part of the reason he didn't push as hard as he could have to get Prez extended back to the 12 issues after it was cut to six was because it felt almost impossible to stay ahead of what was happening politically in that moment in 2016 with satire. Yes. Um, So that's the space he works in. I, I, I do think like, what makes his work uncomfortable sometimes is just how close to the truth it feels like it can be. Mm-hmm. And in 15 years, or maybe this was the 2050s, in 30 years, uh, if we're all pets to robots, I'm not going to be shocked. <clears throat> My only concern is I live outside the perimeter and I know Atlanta, the bubble will be the perimeter. So uh, I will just yeah, be, just I guess, cause... irradiated. I won't be there to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a couple of northern suburbs. Maybe it goes up to Roswell, but no further. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Certainly not going to hit Marietta. Nope. No. Anyway, I think if you primarily know Mark Russell from the Flintstones, this is one issue in. Tonally, I think the closest book he has written to that, just from a like near future sci-fi standpoint. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, like robots in a factory making more human-looking robots having existential crises feels very much like Flintstones working in a factory having existential crises about God and capitalism, which are the same thing. There you go. Yeah, no, I very, very much look forward to reading this one. Yeah. Also, it's gorgeous. Mike Deodato and Lee Lafferidge. It's a beautiful book. Nice. Lucky Devil, number one. Tell me about this one, Brian, and then we'll get to books we both read. Okay. Uh, This is a new book uh, from Dark Horse uh, by Colin Bunn. Hey, there's a name uh, <laughs> we hear a lot and we'll hear more of um, art is uh, Bram Galen and letters are El Torres. Uh, this is the one about kind of, um, uh, you know, the absolute stereotypical down and out, uh, you know, um, beaten down worker. You know, uh, uh, he's the one that has to go get lunch and coffees for everybody at the office. Nobody respects him. That whole thing. Um, just, you know, his girlfriend's cheating on him and he knows it, but he can't, doesn't want to stand up to her because he'll lose her. And like that whole, whole sad sack kind of thing, right? Let me guess. He's uh, in his early 20s? Um, I would guess mid to late 20s, but okay. somewhere in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, at some point he kind of snaps and ends up um, with a demon inside, demon lord inside of him, who... Um, at, has no restraints and no compunctions and like uh ends up s- killing you know a whole bunch of people and like doesn't take any crap from anybody so uh but in doing that he, the the demon expends his energy and then kind of has to basically essentially sleep to inside of him to get that energy back and when and during that this other guy is back in charge and feels all the guilt for what has happened for all the things that have been done. So he goes to this, um, this 
because of course this guy doesn't have a lot of money. He goes to a bargain rate exorcist who kind of helps him <laughs> in that he actually does get the demon out of him, but the demon isn't cast back to hell with his powers. The demon is just cast out into the world without his powers because his powers are still in this guy. Cool. And so when he's at a burger joint ordering something and everything, he snaps and ends up using this power to kind of do the same thing. And now he's got to figure out what the hell's going on <laughs> and what he's going to do if he can. And it's it's interesting because it's kind of written in a uh, with him starting out in a support group. Like, you know, hi, my name is kind of thing. And uh, they're all like, yeah, yeah, we've all done bad things. Well, he's like, no, you really don't know what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. It's it's a it's an interesting blend of uh, of kind of the Cullen Bunn horror, which is where I think he super shines and and, and with like gallows humor thrown in. Cool. And I actually I actually am really digging it. I like it. Awesome. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah. Let's move over to DC and Green Lantern number five. Ooh. This is written by Jeffrey Thorne with art by Tom Rainey, Marco Santucci, Andy McDonald, colors by Mike Atia, and letters by Rob Lee. So this this run so far has kind of split each issue into two stories. Sort of a John Stewart piece and then a piece dealing with the fallout of the battery exploding. And the main reason I wanted to talk about this one this week, I guess there are two reasons. Uh, the bigger one is that first story that follows uh, Kelly over to Korrigar. New Korrigar. New Korrigar. Yeah. And I do not want to explicitly state the identity of the character, the other character in this story. Um, if you have read Future State, you know who it is. If you haven't yet, you should go back and read Future State. Go you were talking about the character who summons the snake entity? Yes, there is a yeah. new yellow lantern in town mm -hmm. uh, in a very cool costume with like a cloak and yeah. sort of a yellow light projection over their face who uh, shows up and like incapacitates Kelly and then sends her home to the Green Lanterns. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love, I love it. I love it. I oh, love it. I am. Yeah. I and am, I cannot wait to see where this arc goes, like yeah. where this storyline goes for this character. It's, it's probably what I'm most excited about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the Jon Stewart side of things, the second point worth mentioning, I think, is this is one of, I'd say, several books now that have kind of caught up to Future State. It at least put you in the same general, like, not all of the events have happened, but you're in the same status quo where, like, oh, yeah, you're in the place where these things all happen. Right? Well, I think very much for the character in the cloak in the first half, we are kind of past where we see them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think for John and the other lanterns who are sort of lost in the ghost sector, they are, like about to embark on what they're what they were doing correct in exactly. future state yep uh which i'm curious to see how some of the other like bigger cosmic lore starts to fit in because there are pieces of that that we 
have not been introduced to yet in Infinite Fr- Infinite Frontier, like the God in Red. Yes. So I'm very curious. I'm really digging this book. Uh, it's, I think, a really satisfying Green Lantern book, and I think splitting the story helps make it feel not just about, like, the kind of military police force side of it. Yeah. The other thing I think, and super quick comment on this, is I think kind of what Future State seems to have done in some instances, and this is a great example of it, is free them up to not be as concerned about timing. Yeah. Right? Like, it's just, you know what, we're just going to write these stories, and they happen in a certain order, right? But we're not necessarily going to present them in that order, and we don't care if we do. Yeah, and I think you see that to varying degrees, because also, like... Uh, we'll talk in a moment about Suicide Squad, which is also knocking on Future State. Mm-hmm. Uh, but literally, there's a panel in that book that is Amanda Waller uh, checking in with Peacemaker, who is hunting Swamp Thing, and the panel and dialogue are literally a page of Swamp Thing. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's... some are keeping a very tight tie, others are being a little looser, and I like that there's that variety. I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, another another example is kind of the like the Batman stuff, right? Yeah, where where we're we're kind of getting us several different points in time, kind of simultaneously, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else about Green Lantern? Uh, no, just again, I'm super super excited about where this is going. Then over to Suicide Squad, written mm-hmm. by Robbie Thompson with art by Eduardo Pansica and Julio Ferreira and Dexter Soy. Colors by Alex Sinclair, and Letters by Wes Abbott. Uh, this is sort of part two of our our visit to Earth 3. Waller sends in an extraction team to save Bloodsport. Is that his name? It is. Okay, cool. I always confuse, now that there's blood work from The Flash, mm-hmm. I always have that moment of hesitation where I'm like, am I getting both of these names right now? Yeah, and it's much easier for me because I I saw the new Suicide Squad movie last night in which Bloodsport is featured prominently. Yes, so. yes. Some of us are in Tech Week, though, and are looking forward mm-hmm. to that tomorrow or Tuesday, maybe. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when when things are a little more in place, because it's, it's, today's our cue to cue, right? The day that we kind of yeah. figure out all the timing, let the stage manager learn how to call the cues and place all the cues in her script, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's the, the last the big, big it, hurdle. Yeah. It's the big work day, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm also sound designing this show, so I've been, like, all day Friday was building a sound plot. Last night, in addition to finishing reading comics, was tweaking some things, because... I needed to fix some levels, and it requires running scripts to actually pull up certain sound cues in specific ways. That's not relevant to comics, but no, I haven't seen it yet, and that's fine. <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask wow, me, Brian, a, have you a, watched yeah, it yet? <laughs> and thank you. Welcome. And now we will leave Brian and Alex's therapy corner and go back to comics. <laughs> uh, sorry, Jen. We'll dust off the therapy corner before we, we leave. <laughs> Um, anyway, yes, uh, yes. Bloodsport has to be rescued from Earth-3. Uh, meanwhile, Waller has a team tracking the Swamp Thing. And by the way, uh, I totally got the impression it wasn't so much going to rescue Bloodsport as it was going to get Dark Siren, which is who Amanda really wanted. Yes, I I think you're right about that. (laughs) I mean... 
I also want to talk about the. <laughs> I also want to talk about the. We kind of get Waller's motivation here, which is on the one hand surprising, but also just so narcissistic that it's perfectly in line with Amanda Waller. It, it's very Amanda Waller, yes. Yeah. Um. Essentially, she is tired of nobody wanting her to save the world in her way. So the reason she has had blood sport hopping universes is to find an Earth that both needs and wants to be saved and therefore won't object to her methods. She wants you to want her. She needs you to need her. <laughs> and she is going to an Earth that is ruled by evil doppelgangers, and that is her cheap trick. Well played, sir. Well played. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and again, we, we're, we're talking about how things are starting to catch up to Future State. Future State is, I feel like, I feel like could be just a couple of issues away from this book. Uh, because at that point, she's on Future State, and I think the only sort of checklist item that we haven't seen her do yet is detain the team who she refers to in Future State Suicide Squad as Task Force Z, the last task force. Right. Not to be confused with Task Force Z, the zombie team in Gotham that starts in October to be led by Jason Todd. Although, I'm not 100% sure those are going to be completely unrelated. I'm not either. Yeah. It would be, it would honestly be a little wild to me if they had two Task Force Zs running around. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then probably the other big thing that was worth mentioning is kind of the reveal at the very end of this. Yes. Well, we've had we've had the question of has Amanda Waller been messing with Superboy's mind? And if you read solicitation copy, you know what the Suicide Squad annual is about. And if you've seen that cover, this last page is probably not a huge surprise, but also it's still a big fun moment, and I cannot wait to see what happens next. And it gets, I think it gets uh, foreshadowed very, very well earlier in this issue. Yes. Yeah. Um, Ultraman makes a comment that is like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, this makes sense now. Yeah. Do you think that any of, any of the, like, I don't know, Harley Quinn, I don't know why Joker would have Superboy on his speed dial, but... Any anyone who's kind of a little, let's say, zany, if Deadpool were a DC character, Deadpool would absolutely do this. Has I think I'm a clone now, the the weird all parody of I think I'm alone now as Superboy's ringtone. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely certain Ambush Bug has that, yes. Okay, perfect. Ambush yeah. Bug, yes. Who we know is joining this roster. Exactly. There you go. There we go. Uh sorry, Robbie Thompson, if I ruined that joke. <laughs> Um, you know what? We're making good time. Let's go ahead and talk about Swamp Thing, since it connects up with Suicide Squad. All right. Uh, this is written by Rom V, with art by Mike Perkins, colors by Mike Spicer, and letters by Aditya Bidikar. Meanwhile, uh, in, in the, uh, jungle in India that Levi Kame is from, we have Peacemaker... Heatwave, Parasite, Kimo, and uh, what is her name? Nightmare Nurse. Nightmare Nurse. That's right. All hunting the Swamp Thing. 
And I think by the end of this issue, it feels pretty clear that he's going to end up hunting them. Yeah. Um. I I love some of the characterization that they have in this though. Like me uh, too. There's a there's a comment that Heatwave makes where um, you know I I guess um Peacemaker's giving them kind of the you know the spiel at the beginning you know and she wants to you know she she'd like she'd prefer to bring him back alive but you know Waller will take anything she can get kind of thing and Heatwave goes you don't bring me in unless you want something to burn yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, that's beautiful. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then the other good one that I liked was uh, uh, Peacemaker saying, "Okay, so uh, Nightmare Nurse is going to go with me. We're going to split up into teams to find him, and you know, Parasite, you and Heatwave go together in chemo." Yeah, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, I. This feels like the most sort of traditionally superhero issue of this book so far yeah yeah but in a way that like narratively and and given the tools that rom v uses to sort of set the story up still has that sort of creepy body horror what's happening vibe consistent with the rest of this series so far Mm -hmm. like I think it combines the two things in a really effective and fun way. I I agree with that. Yeah, because it's always it's always kind of right on the verge of a horror book, and it definitely dips into body horror in places. Yeah. Right? Um, but yet it 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 really keeps itself close to that line. Yeah. Yeah. We've had Mike Perkins and Mike Spicer on most of this book. There was. Uh, the last issue, John McRae guest art guest guest artisted guested as the artist, but I think this is one of my favorite art issues, just because of like how dark and creepy and almost haunted with the kind of acid rain thing going on. Mm-hmm. This forest feels. Yeah, yeah, I like I like it. I do too. Yeah, this is this is V guys. He's pretty good. We're gonna keep an eye on him. <laughs> the Me You Love in the Dark, number one. Written by Scotty Young, with art by Jorge Corona, colors by Jean Francois Beaulieu, and letters by Nate Piecos. What did you think of this, Brian? Speaking of a horror book mixed with comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's Scotty Young, so you know there's gonna be humor in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love how this is set up. One of the things I think I love in so super super quick, super big 10,000 foot view is there is an artist who has become very successful and kind of lost inspiration. Like everybody's expecting her next big thing, right? Mm-hmm. And like she she just doesn't have it. She can't she can't draw or paint right now. So she buys this house that's kind of out in the middle of these this small town ish place and is gonna move there and you know try to find inspiration and and do this um she's told that it's haunted before she moves in, so she starts making jokes about hey ghost you know uh what why don't you fill up my wine glass and uh, make me some breakfast or you know like turn on the music <laughs> or whatever all this stuff right and you know this goes on and she's like ha- really having trouble getting inspiration and all this so uh then finally at one point the ghost answers her <laughs> um but what i love i think most about it is like the obviously she's freaked out but there's nothing at least right now 
that's really scary about this ghost. Yeah. Like, it really feels like an entity that's just lonely and wants to make a friend right now. That's the thing I think I like the most about this, that you can still see it going anywhere, especially oh, knowing yeah. it's a miniseries and like it will come to a head pretty quickly because yeah. of that. But you don't know what direction it's going to take at the end of this issue. If it's right. going to be, you know, Unchained Melody plays and they paint together, or if she's going to be haunted as fuck. Right. Yeah. Or if it, like, does something, like, where it does horrible things to protect her, or, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, it, it really could take several different directions, and I think it is teed up beautifully to go in any of those. I also really love this book's art style. Mm -hmm. Jorge Corona and Jean-Francois Beaulieu are a really great art team for this, especially given that it could kind of go anywhere because their style is just a little bit stylized at top, but it could lean horror, it could lean lighter. In fact, a lot of this book is very bright and well lit. Yes. Um, and I think they could also sort of lean into any direction Scotty Young wants to go. Yeah, I think so too. Like I said, well, very, very much looking forward to uh, seeing what that direction is. Me too. I want to talk a little bit about Deadpool Black, White, and Blood, number one. Alrighty. I feel like a lot of these Black, White, and Blood books that Marvel has put out so far, Wolverine, Carnage, I guess this is the third one, uh, have all felt like heavy action, kind of hyper-violent, dark, gritty. Which, okay, given the subject matter, especially Carnage, makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Even with this being Deadpool, I was shocked, pleasantly surprised, at how funny all three of these stories were. Oh, nice. Um, where there is violence, it is cartoon violence. Uh, the first of these stories is called Red All Over. It's from Tom Taylor, Phil Noto, and Joe Sabino. And it is... Reunited and it feels so good, Deadpool and Gabby. Uh, when no one else will take Deadpool's phone call, his best friend always will. There you go. I don't want to say anything else about it, but I love its premise. Its premise is something I that is right up my alley, even beyond the Gabby team up. Uh, I'm I'm gonna, not going to say any more than that. Brian. Yes, sir. What does the phrase "hotline to heaven" remind you of? Hotline to heaven. Hotline to Heaven. Um, God, there's something in my head, but I can't pull it out. There is a movie, I have to assume, from the 1980s. Is, oh, is this, uh, yeah, where somebody can, like, call and an angel comes down to, what is the name of that thing? Hotline to Heaven. Oh, is it, is, is it actually called Hotline to Heaven? It is called Hotline to oh Heaven. It is about a woman who... Yeah. I don't know if she literally lives in a phone booth or metaphorically lives in this phone booth. Uh, and the phone in it is a direct line to God. And that woman is played by B. Arthur. Oh my god. Wow. This story from Ed Brisson, Will C. Portacio, Rochelle Rosenberg, and Joe Sabino is about Deadpool wanting to watch this movie that he hasn't seen in 30-something years and having to track down the last VHS copy of it from a dictator in basically, like, fake North Korea who has banned all American media but has a fortress full of 
every VHS and DVD he can get his hands on, <laughs> guarded by an elite royal guard. Nobody else can handle the West. Only I can handle the West. Yes. <laughs> uh, the last story is born in the USZORSUSR. Uh, it is by James Stokoe. Deadpool gets a call from Omega Red, who has opened up his own country in the Canadian wildlands, and invites Deadpool to come visit. Uh, I have never read a better take on Omega Red than this one. Um, This is to Omega Red what the Hickman era Mr. Sinister is to Mr. Sinister. Oh my god. He's this just kind of manic, crazed, over-the-top, like, parody of a parody of a Soviet, like, demagogue. Deadpool, my friend, come see what we have done! Um... Who might also be at war with uh, uh, Ursa Major, who he kicked out like three days ago for trying to stage a coup against him. And Deadpool has to negotiate a peace between them. Can I say how much I love the idea of, <laughs> of like these, these old Russian heroes, you know, super people uh, trying to set up their own country and then each of them trying to overthrow the other? <laughs> yes. That's just so... Perfect. It's it's fantastic. Uh it uses it uses the book's color scheme to just delightful effect. Uh probably my favorite single issue overall of any of these black, white, and blood books so oh, far. Oh nice. Yeah. Just an absolute blast. Guardians of the Galaxy annual number one. Uh Brian, you're not reading Guardians right now, right? I am not, sir. So, I actually need you to pick up this one issue by itself and read it. Yeah, I think I'm going to grab all of the annuals that are part of this, what is it, Infinite Destinies or whatever it's called. Uh, And I am looking at just some of the typos in my show notes. I spelled Fury with an E in it. Uh, You know. Nice job. Nobody's going to see it but you and I. Keep going. That's true. (laughs) Uh, I'm leaving that in the episode, though. I want people to know my shame. The reason I'm going to need you to read this one, uh, the main feature here, which is written by Al Ewing with art by Flaviano, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by Corey Pettit, gives us the history of the Prince of Power. Now, you may be used to Hercules being the Prince of Power. Ewing introduced earlier in his Guardians run a new Prince of Power as kind of a rival to Hercules. Uh, a young, muscle-bound, I think the only appropriate word is himbo. And we learned at one point, a few issues ago, that Prince of Power has the power of the power gem in him. I'm going to say the word power a lot in this segment. It's it's going to become meaningless. I apologize in advance for that semantic satiation. Uh, Hercules is in a bar, drinking, being teased about his age. When this young 20-something new Prince of Power crashes the party, literally as he is thrown from afar and lands through the ceiling in the bar, and he and Hercules bicker about the title for a minute, then some alien entity shows up to continue the fight that he was having with the Prince of Power when he threw him into this bar. At which point the Prince of Power decides this is the most appropriate time to tell his life story. Uh... He is born on this planet, uh, the second son 
in a royal family who wanted to raise a prince and hero, who we'll talk more about in a moment, uh, and had genetically engineered their son. And also, the the caretakers implemented the heir and a spare policy to make a second son as well. And Prince of Powers, the second son, Prince Other One. Uh, the older brother is trained in uh, the ways of heroism and princeliness and given a sword and charged with protecting his half of the planet that is good from the other half of the planet that is evil. He's got kind of a chin-length bob uh, and a big sword, and he sort of wears this chest harness, rippling muscles. Is this ringing any bells, Brian? Yeah, he kind of reminds me of a man. A he does? Bit. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he reminds me of a man. He man. He man! <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, he does. It's it's funny you say that, Brian, because he does actually fight this sort of, uh, becloaked evil skeleton. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is, is there a castle involved that maybe is shaped in some particular way? Yeah, uh, it's a skull, and then there are two, like, really jacked arms flexing behind it. Al Ewing. Great flex. Al yes. Ewing. Whom I usually expect to do, like, heady sci-fi concept work. Yeah. And, like, build out these long burn concepts that show up in one book and then years later pop up in another one. Has parodied fucking He-Man <laughs> for this character. Exactly, yes. Just, just, like, just like that. He has parodied He-Man for Prince of Power's backstory. And then he makes it just gut-wrenchingly sad. Uh, and I adore it. This issue is genius. Flaviano and Rochelle Rosenberg, like, clearly had a blast with the art for this one. Oh, yeah. I will, I'll definitely be picking this up then. Uh, it is incredible. If you are reading Guardians of the Galaxy ongoing, this is, I think, one of the few Infinite Destinies books that explicitly fits into that story and is a part of the ongoing, which makes sense, because it's Al Ewing writing this. Most of them have not been written by their ongoings creative teams. Mm -hmm. uh, Miles, I think, will be the other exception. To so much fun. Infinite Fury Part 6 is the backup, continuing the uh, uh, Nighthawk, Nick Fury Jr. story to kind of terrifying effect. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like it's getting closer to uh, to not being good. I mean, it's excellent. Um, yeah, what will but, happen yeah. in it is exactly. horrifying. Yeah, uh, And that's, again, written by Jen McKay with art by Juan Ferreira and letters by Joe Caramagna. Let's talk about some X-Books, Brian. Oh, boy. Hellions, number four. Written or by Zeb Wells, art by Rohe Antonio, colors by Rain Barreto, letters by Ariana Mar, and design by Tom Moeller. Or as I like to call it, a bad day for Mr. Sinister. <laughs> I don't know. On the one hand, yes, clearly. On the other hand, uh, I think it's well established that Sinister's level of narcissism would consider any day in which the majority of people in his lair are exact clones of himself is a good day, right? Like, that's that's his definition of a good time. There, There, there is that, um... 
And the fact that everyone there is, uh, you know, is concerned about him and what he has done, then, yeah, I guess you get that also. It's all about him. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Of course, he's also, also, you know, on the receiving end of, let's say, a good deal of retribution from Tarn's minions. Mm -hmm. And what he actually did is revealed to the rest of the Hellions. Yes. And we, we, we also get one word of, of what he has maybe used the information that he gained when he also, you know, killed them all to make sure they couldn't tell the story of what he had them steal. Yeah. Uh, we learn what maybe that's been used for. And given House of X and Powers of Ten, that code name that he spits out there is interesting, isn't it, Brian? Uh, yeah. Are we going to say what that is? Sure. Chimera. Chimera. Oh boy. I wonder what that could be. It's probably going to be something completely different to fake us out. I know this. Yeah, probably. Um, the other thing that I think it's super critical, this is something you and I have been kind of punting around back and forth in text, right? And it, mm-hmm. I, essentially, as far as I'm concerned, gets 100% confirmed in this. And that is the fact that when mutants are dying, specifically when they're dying off world, meaning not... In, in another reality. Right. And not in 616, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that somehow there, something about them is retaining what it is that killed them. And when they are reborn, they are. So we saw this with Otherworld with a couple of people who, when they died in Otherworld, right? They were, uh, they came back and they were very different. Right? Yeah. So. With those characters, it was basically like when they were brought back, someone hit randomize on a character creator for that character right? with different traits from across the multiverse. Yes. That was sort of the first explicit example of they came back, but they came back wrong. Yeah. Or or at least different, right? Yeah. Yeah. In Hellions, mm-hmm. uh, earlier issues around around Ten of Swords, we saw that the characters who died on Ameth mm-hmm. came back as sort of the uh, versions of themselves that would have thrived and survived on Ameth. A right. little more, more hot-headed, too. stronger, yeah. more warlike. Very much in line with sort of the evolutionary track we had seen of the Iraqi mutants. Right. Uh, Brian mentioned texting him, and I did text him about this because I had an epiphany a few days ago. And I asked, I, by the way, just so you all know, I did ask him if it was delicious when he had it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I had this epiphany, and I am only bringing this up because I love how, like, subtle the book was about this and that it chose not to make a meal out of it. Or yes. Or the books. It actually involves two books. Mm-hmm. Uh, in X-Factor, Wind Dancer died on Mojo World. Right. And explicitly like she engineered her own demise because she just could not take living that life and she died on mojo world and when she was revived like we didn't see a lot of her right away but then she popped up again in x corp as a social media manager which like felt a little weird in a way because didn't she not like this kind of attention well you know she's behind the camera not in front of it that's different but no like in this context uh yeah. i was i was talking to someone else in a discord server uh jd's discord server for uh comics quest mm-hmm. uh we were kind of talking about how the the what happens if you die on another world and a revived works 
And someone asked, so what if you died on Mojo World? And I'm like, wait, no, we've seen that. She's the social media manager because that's where she died. And when she was revived, she was revived as the version of herself that would have most thrived on Mojo World. Right. I think it's brilliant. I think this is, I think this is amazing. And we saw her die on Mojo World and come back well before Ten of Swords. Uh-huh. Like, the level of just teasing and planting ideas and then just waiting for someone to eventually notice them. I love that kind of thing. That just let's be subtle and not draw attention and see how long it takes in mm-hmm. storytelling. It's like Fringe. I loved Fringe for the same reason. Yeah, this is this is super super cool. And this is, you know, this we've talked about this before. This is exactly the kind of thing you can get when all of the writers on these books are communicating, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, sharing what their ideas and and overall plans are. Yeah. I yeah. love it. We also get a little bit of probably the most outside of seeing like Charles and Magneto approach them. Uh Iraqi politics in this issue because Tarn has approached the ring. Right. Uh and we see Storm as a member of the ring now, uh having to negotiate like the fact that she is she still has a home on Krakoa and is not an Iraqi but is queen of Iraqo, regent of Saul. Uh but also like Tarn is having to get permission from the ring to go do violence. And Clearly, like, they don't love him. They don't really want him around, it seems like. I just, I love as little as, as little of a rocky day-to-day as we've gotten. I love any glimpse of that that we get. Yeah. And, you know, you say he has to ask permission. Does he have to? (laughs) I mean, in the same way that Sinister has to. Exactly. The thing I really like about that is there's so much two sides of the same coin. Well, and this is not the first character we've seen that of, right? We've seen, who is it, Solemn and Wolverine? Yeah. Right? Where we get this, they are definitely not the same. It's not like they're the same person by any stretch of the imagination. But they, they are very clearly parallels to each other. Right? Yeah. And yet, Tarn is very, very much the parallel of Sinister. And yeah. I love this. Let's talk about X-Men number two. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Pepe Larraz, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Clayton Cowles, and design by Tom Muller. We see the continued uh, bets in Cordyceps Jones, uh, Cordyceps Jones's den of iniquity, or what have you, uh, his his gambling base. Also, a quick mention: Cordyceps Jones showed up in Guardians of the Galaxy annual as well. Okay, yeah, he's he's busy, a busy little bee that Cordyceps Jones. And I mean, if just in case anybody didn't realize, I'm always betting on the X Men. Yes. <laughs> Hey, I've got it on good authority that X is going to give it to you. <laughs> Let's go. We have, uh, in this issue, the X-Men have to deal with the Annihilation Wave released in Kansas to try to destroy the Earth, because that's what Cordyceps Jones has people betting on. Yep. Uh, I I love how... um, I, I love how they're taking this group and showing them as a group. It's not a, a lot of times with X-Men as the big main lead book, right? There's a lot of time where it's just kind of the action and the action and the yeah. action. Um but like we see a scene where Sync, right, is spending time with Jean learning how to be a telepath. 
Yeah. Right. Um, and I like I I think that's super super cool because like the you know his power is obviously incredibly strong that he can take somebody else's power and you know whatever that power is that makes him super flexible, but if he doesn't know how to use it, it makes it much much less effective. I also love the moment in that scene where he's like, "Okay, I've had enough of this. I'm turning it off," and he's yeah. like, "Lucky, yes." I am glad for you that you can do that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I like about this book, we've seen it twice now, is like the really leaning into the idea of mutant circuits. Yeah. Last time it was, hey, we're going to build a big robot, which feels like a kind of almost subtle version of that because it's not like you're getting new powers. You're just sort of using powers in sync with each other. In this, we see Polaris and Jean team up to do something Gene has never been able to do before by basically making a giant MRI machine. Yeah. That lets her read a dead mind. Yeah, um, we see we see and I mean this is this is like the new version of the fastball special where we see um Rogue do something. She throws something up and then Cyclops hits it to like shatter it and project it at everybody. So it's like this just shrapnel effect of Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I do love how they are clearly making very focused decisions on how they can combine mutant abilities. And in, in even, like, a lower stakes way, uh, I think this book proves, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I frankly need a Jean Grey in my life. Because at one point, somebody references a film, and Laura, erstwhile the best Wolverine, says, I haven't seen it. And Jean immediately plants the entire contents of that movie in her mind. <laughs> and then there's Alex, who's bad at movies, who absolutely needs somebody to just implant all of the movies in his head. God, I'm, I am loving it. I am. I, I love da -da -da -da. <laughs> it. Is, it is all, you know how I said it's not just the big, it is still the big, big bombastic fights also. Like, yeah. that's not gone. It's just, that's not all it is. Uh, and fantastic. Yep. Is it still good? The Wrong Earth, Night and Day, number six. Our our multiversal hijinks uh, wrap up in a way as uh, the Alpha and Omega Earth teams all end up on Earth Zeta. And the Zeta Mandragonfly escapes to Earth Alpha. And then... Everybody loses their tickets home. Basilisk number three, Brian. Um, the trap is set for the uh the members of Basilisk, and they don't disappoint. They're gonna show up. Seven Secrets number eleven. If you haven't placed your bets on who to ship yet in this book, do it now because we learn one big ship. Wind number nine. Uh, it's a bad day in the land of the fairies, and let's just say uh. Some really heavy shit goes down. Batman, number 111, Brian. All right, this is this could be a little bit of a deep cut. We'll see if you get it. Um, Miracle Molly one-ups the female student in the first row of uh, uh, of Indiana Jones's college class. Did you get that one? I remember the scene, but I'm not sure what you mean. Where she, where she blinks and she has written on her eyelids, I love you. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. 
<laughs> so Miracle Molly. Beautiful. One, well done. <laughs> thank you. Miracle Molly one up, sir. Um, and uh, turns out, yeah, just trying to make a deal with Peacekeeper is just not going to work out. <laughs> Also, Harley Harley's a little thirsty for Ghostmaker. <laughs> Which I kind of like. <laughs> I do, too. Like, one, okay, Harley, you maybe need to stop dating sociopaths, but two, I love them on the page together. Yeah. I mean, at least date one that's got, like, a code and some rules around them so you know yeah. what to expect, I guess. Crime Syndicate number six, Brian. Um, Let's see. This is... uh. This is our last issue of this. Um, so it this is. is. Yeah, this is number six of six. And uh, we, uh, wow. Uh, turns out, you know, the whole, um, why, uh, why didn't Ant-Man just do a certain thing to, uh, to, to, go to Thanos? Oh, yes, the Thanos theory. <laughs> yeah, the Thanos theory. Um, we get a different take on that. Uh, with Atomica, and um, I, I, I simultaneously hated it and loved it at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. So we we really see where the crime syndicate ends as the absolute rulers of of this world at the end of this. Yeah, which is you know exactly where they should be. Uh, I mean, you know, not from my standpoint, but from a canonical how it actually happened. Yeah, right. Loved it. Crushin Lobo number three, Brian. <laughs> wow. You know, she knew going to see her dad in prison was a bad idea. <laughs> yep. Um, but him using it to uh basically switch places with you so that you're now the prisoner is uh wow. That's 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 just another level, man. <laughs> I know this is not a surprise. No. But Deadpool is not Deadpool. Lobo. Jesus. <laughs> Lobo is not winning any Father of the Year awards. No, no. I, I do love, I do love the uh, the unnecessary flashbacks that we keep getting. Them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The dreaming waking hours number twelve. This is the last issue of this. It was always planned as a twelve issue series, uh, and it it gives, I think, a satisfying end to everyone's stories. But also leaves enough doors open, or the doors open just enough for me to think, you know, we could get more. And I would absolutely read more. And I cannot recommend this enough. If you dig Sandman or Sandman adjacent stuff, uh, this whole this whole run's been a blast. The art is gorgeous. Definitely check it out. I think the Sandman universe, you know, could be around for a while. We say, like, what, 30 years later? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Justice League number 66, Brian. Um we see that the Justice League does indeed have the best panic room ever. And um we're really we're really set up to see just how powerful Naomi really is. The nice house on the lake number 3. Gee, there are a lot of weird sculptures here. The good Asian number 4. Uh, just as it looks like maybe the investigation is starting to make some progress and get some answers, the worst possible thing that could happen for Chinatown happens. Stillwater, number nine. Uh, the kids are not all right. And also nothing is creepier than a baby who hasn't aged in 20 years. Oh. Avengers, number 47. 
Um, Hulks are the best at what they do, and what they do is smash. Immortal Hulk number 49. Actually, no smashing in this book. Huh. Uh, the Hulk saw a red door and walked through it. Silk number 5. Silk has to team up with her new nemesis to stop an evil cat demon from summoning a cat god. And, uh... Well, there's a reason why you don't team up with your nemeses. Sinister War, number two. Uh, Kindred has his hooks in all of the Sinister teams in a very in a way that would make Amanda Waller very proud. Horizon Zero Dawn, Liberation, number one. Uh, this is a new... I assume it's a miniseries. I, I don't have an issue count on it, but the first one was four issues. I assume this will be about the same. Uh... The last Horizon Zero Dawn book we had was set after the game. This one is actually set during, uh, probably about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way into it. And is Aloy and Erend going to get revenge on people responsible for Erend's sister's death? We get some flashbacks to seeing Aaron's sister while she was still alive, and like most of the women in this game, a complete badass. Uh, it's it's a fun way to like dig back into this world while you wait for Forbidden West. Which you're not going to have to wait a little bit longer for. But it's worth it. It absolutely is worth it, yeah. Heavy number seven. Uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. This week's books, Hardware, Season 1, number 1 of 6, written by Brandon Thomas, with art by Dennis Cowan and Bill Sienkiewicz, colors by Chris Sotomayor. I am excited for this one. I actually have gone back and read a little bit of the original Hardware. Okay. Uh, it was, I think, the first milestone stuff to get recollected digitally on Comixology last oh, year. okay. And uh, I haven't I haven't finished that volume yet, but I, I dig what I've read of it so far, and I'm excited for this. I like, as with all things Milestone Returns, I like where we saw this character in that sort of one-shot teaser. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious to see where, where we go. Brandon Thomas has been killing it lately. Dennis Cowan and Bill Sienkiewicz are always great. Like, totally here for this. Yeah, so interesting thing. I thought I had read one of the old, like, at least the first old hardware one. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out I, I did not read it, and the reason that I know I didn't read it is because um, this was in the 90s when, like, everything that was a first issue was like, every, oh, everybody has to buy all of the first issues of everything. <laughs> so I, I absolutely bought it, and it was sealed in a in, in, in plastic, and it is still sealed in plastic. <laughs> So I know I didn't read it. Fair. Uh, That's but, usually uh, a, a good indicator. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no, I, all the milestone stuff's been really good so far. So, uh, yeah. yeah, another one is is very welcome. I am Batman number zero. Another way in which we are catching up to the future state status quo. Definitely, flow. yes. Uh, this picks up right where uh, next Batman's second son ended. Uh, it is written by John Ridley with pencils by Travel Foreman, inks by Norm Rapman, and colors by Rex Locus. And I'm guessing letters by And World Design since Darren Bennett lettered all of the second son issues. Yeah. I, I like how Alex has this in the notes. It's letters, And World Design. Probably? <laughs> I couldn't find it for sure, but I'm making the educated guess that it's yeah. still... I think still probably is the, is the right descriptor for that. I think it, yeah. 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 
Tune in next week to find out if I was right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, here's one that I keep forgetting is happening, and then I <sighs> am reminded and get super excited. Yeah. Defenders, number one of five, written by Al Ewing, with pencils and colors by Javier Rodriguez, inks by Alvaro Lopez, and colors by Joe Caramagna. I am, I am excited, A, that they are doing this as a limited series, because this is not something I would want to pick up and commit to. But I am so excited to get it because it is a something I can get into and just get through. And like I, I can't wait for this. It's going to be Doctor Strange collecting super odd characters to try to make a team out of. Like, let's do that. Yeah. Uh, the cover has Red She-Hulk still in her uh, immortal Hulk form. Mm-hmm. Silver Surfer. Is that Doctor or the Masked Rider? There we go. The Masked Rider, it says in the article. And a character called Cloud, who I'm not familiar with. Yeah, this, like I said, this is going to be, uh, well, it, it, it is definitely one of those. I think it was, what is the most, one of the most eclectic teams we can think of to try to put together? And uh, uh, yeah. I it's like also it. been a very long time since we've had a Defenders book. It has. I, I, yeah, the there was last a... volume was, I believe, in 2012 by Matt Fraction. Nope there was a there was a super short, almost, and I know it was really, really short in like like two and a half, two two and a half years ago. Oh yeah, I right. Yeah, that one was such a weird structure that I it almost was. don't count it because it was yeah. a series of one shots and then one team book. Yeah, exactly. And that's why uh, I said kind yeah. of. You're right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. I guess there was also the Fearless Defenders, but that felt like a very different roster. Uh it was Colin Bunn, I believe, writing with art by uh Declan Shalvey, and it was an all women team. Uh, led by like Valkyrie and a uh, couple of other characters. Okay, but yeah, yeah. regardless, super sort excited of for this. The one. classic Defenders roster led yeah. by Doctor Strange. We haven't seen in a while, which is right. really yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that was a rabbit hole. Brian, yes, sir. Tell me about the unbelievable Unteams. Oh, I cannot. I I, I am. Ultra, ultra excited for this. This promises to be the teen hero book of the Black Hammer universe. Um, so I'm super, one of the things I'm most interested in is seeing, figuring out kind of which team they base it on. Is it, you know, is it like Teen Titans or is it going to be like Champions or, you know, Young Avenger? Like, I'm super excited to see kind of where they go with this. I've assumed X-Men this whole time. I mean, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable Unteens makes me think Uncanny oh, X-Men. That's, you, no, you're probably right. You're absolutely probably right. Um, But then you get the premise of this, which is there's a comic book writer in the world of Buckingham who is at a convention signing stuff for a comic that she wrote about these teenage heroes who then starts figuring out that maybe she didn't just create them. Maybe they, she actually was one of them and they actually existed and their memories are gone now. Oh, that's cool. Right. That actually does have a very Titans vibe to it though. Yeah, That's kind of my, I'm like, okay, we'll see. I mean, I, I, okay. Yeah. This whole world is pastiche, right? It, it could easily it could, be 
It, a lot of different people are one person. I was going to say, there's nothing to say. It's not all of those. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I I can't I can't wait for this. This is going to be great. Lunchroom continuity. <laughs> there it is. Uh, and finally, Batman 89 number one. Written by Sam Hamm. Art by Joe Quinones. Colors by Leonardo Ito. And letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh... So, okay, um, look, my theme for this week has been please stop yelling at me for not having seen things. I've never seen any of the old Batman movies from Tim Burton on through whenever they fizzled out. Uh, but let me tell you, the art in this is gorgeous. And this clearly feels like it is modeled after specifically the Tim Burton films and not the two after. Yeah, I think it's very specifically the original Batman movie from Burton. Yeah. Because... Who is Harvey Ditt modeled on in this one? Uh, Jack Nicholson. No, isn't it? Well, oh, no, Nicholson just Joker, Joker, Joker. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, um, it's not Tommy Lee Jones. No, it's um. Uh, uh, He's a much smoother. I know, I know. Billy D. Williams. I just couldn't think of the name. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Billy D. Yes, I, I had uh, the face in my in my brain, and I was like, yeah. why can't I not put a name to that? Right, that's stupid. <laughs> um. But yeah, this this I think will be a lot of fun, especially if you're a fan of the movie. So, so uh, what you're saying is he's, he he's a smooth criminal? Is that what you're saying? That is the joke I made. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, okay, I got it now. Took me a minute. I was still I was still wrapping my head around how could I not think of the name Billy <laughs> D. Williams? I'll be honest. It's just <laughs> uh, you know I've been to very few like we're gonna put one celebrity on stage and let them talk for an hour panels at mm-hmm. Dragon Con. Yeah. I did go to the Billy D. Williams one one year, and he was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I think the only other one I've done was George Takei. Okay. And both of them have been doing cons and things long enough that they can easily carry an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Now, incidentally, after the Takei one, I know a lot about the L.A. transit system. <laughs> there you go. Uh <laughs> It was still a fun conversation. I don't know how he made that fun, but he did. Anyway, that is it for this week. Yeah. We would, as always, like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. You can visit us at panelologypodcast.com. Support us at patreon.com slash panelology. Get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch capital P, capital M, or suggest questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelology mailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.